Hello, welcome back to the Tough Rugby Podcast. I'm pleased to announce got the usual man in the studio. Zach, how are you? Not doing too bad, Telf. Um, busy week at uni, back back to classes, but not doing too bad. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. And I'm pleased to announce we've got Tim Visser on the line, former Scotland, Harlequin, Edinburgh. The impressive rugby CV goes on. How are you, Tim? I'm good, thank you. How are you guys? Yeah, we're doing doing well. Doing well, can't complain. Lovely. <laughs> Uh, we're very pleased to have you on. You're, you've got a very interesting kind of rise for rugby, so uh, okay. interesting to. You think so? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think just the way best way to do it is just kind of jump back to the very start. So just tell us a bit about like where you grew up and how you got into rugby, because I know out in the Netherlands and all, it was quite an interesting road to kind of professional rugby. Yeah, um, you know, I think it, I guess it's one that you don't hear much. Um, it has happened since. Um, a couple of times now, but I was the first ever professional rugby player to come out of the Netherlands. So at the time it was kind of unheard of. Um, but just going back to the start, I played rugby um, in Holland since I was uh, eight years old. My dad always played rugby. Uh, both my uncles from both sides played rugby and it, it was just a big family sport. I guess what it's like um, over here as well. Um, you know, the big difference being that rugby is a very small sport back in the Netherlands. There's about 100 clubs in total. I think there may well be about 15,000 members, which is it's actually not too bad. But, um, you know, the issue we have in Holland, and it's not so much an issue, is the fact that we're good at a broad range of sports. Um, you know, football is very, uh, first and foremost, the biggest sport in Holland by a long mile. But if you look at, for instance, the Olympics, we are good at a lot of sports you know you look at summer olympics winter olympics the dutch will always be picking up a load of gold medals in anything from speed skating to handball basketball you know name it and we're good at it um which means that rugby kind of gets forgotten about um and you know it's there for very much an amateur sport um but very similar to the UK in the, in the way that it's a big family sport. And I, for instance, would have played with sons of um, fathers that my dad would have played with. Um, so it was very much, um, you know, a very tight world um, and, and one that I grew up in as a baby. You know, I, I always used to go to a rugby club um, and enjoyed, um, you know, spending time there as a kid uh, and eventually, yeah, picked up the rugby ball when I was eight. Um, Started playing, uh, you know, really enjoyed it, never really looked back. <clears throat> and by the time I was 15, I'd gone through all of the Dutch national representative teams up to up to 18s, I think. Um, and um, actually, I ended up playing 21s. No, I ended up playing 20s when I was 16, uh, just before I left Holland. Um, you know, not so much a, yeah, sounds really impressive. Uh, it's not so much a, a reflection on myself, but also very much on the level of rugby in Holland, I guess, in that a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old could play in the 20s. That, you know, that would never happen. <laughs> I guess it has happened, but... Yeah, it's quite rare. It, it's very rare. Um, so I, um, I have been going to the Amsterdam Sevens ever since as far back as I can remember. You know, my dad used to play in it and um, friends and whatever else. And, and when I got to 15... Um, my then coach organised um, a team to enter the Amsterdam Sevens to, to play in the tournament, which consisted of a load of young Dutch talent, so kids that I would have played in the representative teams with, 
mixed with um, some some pros and some, some semi pros from from the UK. And um, in my team, you know, coincidentally, was a guy called Joe Shaw, who, who's now come back as uh, backs coach. I think he's now head coach at, at Starry's. Um, and another chap called James Grindle, who was um, a scrum half for Newcastle Falcons at the time, and both of them played for Newcastle. And I ended up having, um, you know, a very good tournament. Um, I actually wasn't allowed to play in the tournament initially because I was, um, I was sixteen. I think I was still fifteen during that tournament, and um, they therefore uh, I needed dispensation to play senior rugby which they weren't going to give me. Um, I eventually, at the last minute, kind of got it and ended up playing in that tournament, doing really well. And afterwards, Joe Shaw said, oh, I'd really like to tell our academy manager at Newcastle about you. And, um, you know, I think, I think you've, you, you're good enough to, to try, it, try it out in the UK. And um, I remember not thinking too much of it and, you know, not getting too excited, partly because we were not aware that there is professional rugby in the way as in that there is players just doing that you know we were yeah. we, I'm sure we understood that players were getting paid for it I, I just seen Johnny Wilkinson kick the um, the winning drop goal in the uh, in the World Cup for uh, against Australia and we kind of understood that um, but uh, you know did not grasp the fact that it was a profession um, so anyway, um, I ended up going over together with one of my other good friends who'd also had a really good tournament. And we met a guy called John Fletcher, who's since gone on uh, you know, to, new, to, to be Newcastle head coach. And he's now, or he was involved with all the England age grade stuff. Um, you know, great guy, phenomenal with young players. Um, you know, one of the best coaches, one of the best hands-on coaches I've ever seen, I reckon. Um, but anyway, I did, I, did a, I did a week with Newcastle. Must have impressed because they offered me a spot at Barna Castle School to um, to go and study uh, and kind of, uh, you know, play and train with the academy. So I ended up doing my A-levels at Barna Castle, which was a pretty wild experience for, you know, a free-flying Dutchman coming over mm -hmm. to a public school, having to wear a uniform, having to call my teacher, sir. Um, mm -hmm. You know, at one point I remember getting caught with booze and I had to stand in the corner. I could not believe what was going on. You know, in Holland at 16, you could drink. And mm -hmm. I used to call my teacher Hank or whatever his name was. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a pretty, pretty wild experience. Um, but I enjoyed it. You know, I think anyone, you know, in public school wanting to go to boarding school, it's like being at rugby camp all year long. I absolutely loved it. Um, so yeah, no, no, I really enjoyed that. Um, and, and as soon as I left school, I got off my first um, senior academy contract at Newcastle, um, which brought me almost straight away to my debut for Newcastle at the time. Wow. So in terms of um, playing school rugby, um, a lot, obviously, I don't know if you're aware, involved much in kind of like the school system at all these days but um we kind of me and telford we grew up playing school rugby together um and it's almost like a professional semi-professional three-quarters professional sport these days you're training in the gym nearly every morning every week you've got skills at lunchtime and then you have training after school and a game on a saturday and then video yeah. analysis you have everything was that the same was that yours do you have a, did you have a similar experience at school or was it kind of less um professional? no no, I mean, to, to a certain degree, which, which school did you guys go to? Uh, we went to a school um, in NI, Corian Inst. Um, okay, both over in Ireland. 
but yeah, both of her. Yeah. yeah, so it was. Yeah. Now, yeah. I mean, the Barna Castle is a, is a big rugby school. Um, when I went there, they'd just been in the final of the Daily Mail Cup for a couple of years in a row. Okay. Um, you know, they, they were one of, I mean, certainly in the north, um, it, it was Sedbra and, and Barna Castle. Um, so, yeah, it, it was a big sport, but it wasn't all consuming um, as you describe it there. Yes, we would okay. also train. Uh, probably three, maybe four times a week. You know, obviously, when you play rugby, your PE is is rugby. Yeah. Um, so you, you'd spend a lot of time on the paddock, but um, you know, gym was very much optional. Um, we did not have lunchtime skills or anything like that. But you know, it, it was very serious, and I think that also it's reflective of of the, of where we are, Gabriel from Newcastle to now. If you see how professional clubs are run, um, the amount of staff, the amount of science behind it, it's almost completely changed um, yeah. even from you know 15 years ago when I started. Mm. Yeah, so um, so you've kind of you've, you've just joined Newcastle as you were saying, um, and then you join Northampton Saints for a bit who've just been relegated to the championship. What was that like going from the premiership into the championship? Was it a massive uh, drop in standard um, or, or, or not so much? Obviously, being No, I mean, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I was only at Northampton for about four weeks in total, I think. Um, okay. This was during the time when Chris Ashton had just joined Northampton as a rugby league um, player and he hadn't, he didn't understand the rules. He didn't understand the game uh, very well. So I think they just needed someone um, for a short-term cover until he did. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I came over. I was with Newcastle. I wasn't playing so much there. So um, John Fletcher said, well, why don't you go on loan to Northampton, get some games in championship, and then you know, come back kind of when you fancy it. So uh, I ended up going down. And bear in mind that. Saints had just relegated to the championship. It was very much, um, you know, a premiership club in, in the yeah. championship. So the setup was was really good. Um, and, um, I mean, I ended up, I think, playing about three games in which period um, Chris Ashton played for the second team, figured out rugby, and then scored about 36 tries in the championship last season. <laughs> so, you know, I wasn't, there, I wasn't there very long, but it's very much like what it would be now for Saris in the championship. You know, they're by far the best team. Um, although, you know, Saris lost one of their games, I saw. Um, <laughs> but it's, you know, it, it was very much a premiership club in the championship. No, that's, 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 that is very interesting. And then kind of when you kind of went back to Newcastle, you kind of hit the ground running in that first season, you were scoring tr- tries for fun. Did you feel the pressure then of kind of, having a professional contract playing professional rugby or was it like kind of in your younger days where you literally just got the ball and ran and scored tries? Yeah. I, don't I, um, I, don't, I don't think I was very mentally invested at that point. Um, you know, everything had come to me relatively easy up to that point. So, um, you know, obviously first Dutch player to ever play um, in the premiership professionally uh, and to make it to professional rugby, um, Flew through school, um, you know, ended up representing England in their 18s because that was a school team. So I was eligible for that, played in the Four Nations, funnily enough, against Scotland. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, you know, in that first year with Newcastle, I made my debut, scored in my first three games, 
Um, everything just went really well and easily up until that point. I got a new two-year contract. So I, I eventually ended up spending about three years with Newcastle and just kind of stagnated at that point. I think the, what didn't help was that John Fletcher got, um, got sacked. So a new coach came in in the form of Steve Bates. Um, Steve and I didn't really didn't really like each other very much. Um, he didn't really like my attitude, which, you know, in all honesty, probably wasn't wasn't that good. I had discovered the nightlife of Newcastle at that point. Uh, and, and when I wasn't playing, you know, I'd be out tw- at least twice a week at that point, um, which, um, which didn't help. I also think, looking back on that period, um, I was relatively self-obsessed at that point. You know, I thought I was absolutely amazing. Um, probably caused by the fact that everything had gone so well up in that point um, and everything had gone so easily for me, which meant that I wasn't really taking criticism on board very well or, or any type of feedback. Um, and, um, you know, when it came to the end of that three-year period with Newcastle, uh, Steve Bates and I kind of looked at each other and, I mean, both agreed that it wasn't going to be extended. Um at which point, I think that's the big turning point in my career where okay. you know, I kind of realised, oh shit, if I don't pull my finger out now, mm-hmm. very well be the end of it and I'll be back in Holland before you know it kind of thing. Um, and um, my agent um, at the time, uh, a guy called Mark Spores, uh, also represented Andy Robinson. So Andy Robinson obviously got sacked from the England job um, and ended up taking uh, Edinburgh to uh, second in the league that season. Um, and they, uh, he knew me from my time with England 18s and, and I was going through sort of the England pathway at the time. I was in the intermediate academy with guys like Danny Kerr and uh, Danny Cipriani. And um, he obviously remembered me from that time and said, well, listen, if, if, if he can't find a team in England, we would happily offer him a place at Edinburgh. Um, and there was a couple of offers at the time or, or interest from teams like Leicester uh, and there was there was another one it might have been Irish um, and I just wasn't really that interested in going down to Leicester and smashing rucks and wherever else all day long um, so I went to go and see Andy and another chap called Rob Moffat at the time he was backs coach at Edinburgh um, and you know rocked up at um, Murrayfield loved the stadium loved the facilities um, Andy sold me a dream which ended up being you know being true kind of thing he said you know come and play at Edinburgh um you know we play free flowing rugby and you'll score lots of tries uh, and if anything you know use that as a springboard to move on or you know whatever you kind of want we'll give you a two-year deal and you just use it as you kind of want uh, and I ended up signing and literally and I think he did say at the time you know there's a chance I'm going to get the Scotland job um so Literally before I even joined the club, I think he got the Scotland job and Rob Moffat took over. Um, luckily, Rob Moffat is probably the second biggest influence on my career. He's very similar to John Fletcher and that he's very hands-on, very good with younger players, um, you know, extremely positive, just an all-round great guy. And I actually ended up having both of them at my wedding as well, which kind of shows how, how much I like them. Um, but... Uh, Literally, I started started playing. The, the style of play suited me. And I think that's where it really hit home that if I wasn't going to dig in, that could really be the end for me. So I started taking everything so much more serious. You know, my diet, my training, uh, 
my my gym work, my skills work, everything. And, and I was really enjoying it. And, and the style of play suited me. So I ended up scoring a boatload of tries in that first season. Um, got nominated for Young Player of the Year in the league, I think. But also nominated for Player of the Year. Um, I won Young Player, lost Player of the Year to Tommy Bow at the time. He was, you know, a big... He was a big... Um, you guys see you both smiling. Uh, he was a big competitor for me at the time. You know, obviously he was he was playing for for Ospreys at the time, and he was a a big opponent for me. Um, but I kind of never looked back. You know, really enjoyed. And in those first four years at Edinburgh, I was in the dream team for every year. Um, I was top try scorer of the league every year. Uh, I became player of the year uh, the second season, I believe. Um, you know, scored. Uh, and actually, I've scored the most tries in the Pro 14 only behind Tommy Bow, um, wow. which you know shows how, how much of a of a, a competitor he was at the time. Although I've got to say, I've spent a lot less time in the league than he has, but we'll not mention that. <laughs> um, and um, you know, the number of other records, uh, I think most hat tricks, that kind of stuff. So you know, it just kind of shows how much I enjoyed my time at Edinburgh at the time. Um, and when it came to the end of that sort of three-year period, and there'd been some chats in the media, you know, like, oh, Tim's never played for um, for the Netherlands or, or any other senior representative team. So there's an opportunity for him to, to potentially represent Scotland. And I always kind of pushed that to the back of my mind. And I never really, I was reluctant to talk about it in the media just because, you know, I, I don't think there is any point um, talking about something that, isn't practically possible until it's possible. Um, but when I came to the end of that, that, those three years, I'd had a couple of chats with Andy and he said, you know, if you keep going and you keep working hard, you know, there's a real chance that you could represent Scotland, which, you know, is a, is a dream come true for, for anyone, but, but especially from someone like, for someone like me coming from Holland, mm. you know, a team that at that point was 39th in the world rankings to represent a team that you've only ever seen on the BBC. Um, was was really special and and you know I felt really at home in Scotland at the time um, loved loved being in the capital um, and ended up uh, yeah making my debut against Fiji uh, I think it's the 12th of June 2012 well, that's, that's fascinating so, so it's it is it's an incredible rise it's almost like you were saying you know you come to Edinburgh and just hit the ground running and everything almost seems to turn to gold for you, did you notice um, a difference in standard between at that point? I'm pretty sure it was the Pro 12 or the Celtic League compared yeah. to the Premiership. Um, okay, I think it's a load of rubbish. I think really? it's a load of rubbish. Yeah, I, I mean, I've obviously played in both uh, mm-hmm. and kind of went full circle again, ending up with Arlequins, but you know, the, the, the quality is the same. You know, of course, of course, when the Italian teams joined they got flogged every week. Don't get me wrong. They were terrible. We would put 50 points on Treviso and, and Zebra. But if you look at them now, you know, Treviso were, were hugely competitive before we went into the conference system. Um, Zebra are, are even now doing really well. Um, and every other team, you know, whether you were playing Scarlets or Northampton Saints, you know, the, the, the standard is very similar. And yes, of course, teams like Leinster, um, were able to manage their squads better for European games um, because when they're playing the, the Italian teams, they could put out a second team and then keep the boys fresh uh, to get to go against um, you know Leicester or Claremont or wherever they needed to play. 
but the, the weekly standard is no different between the two, whether whether you play in the Pro 14 or, or in the Premiership. I, I don't believe that. And, you know, thought, the exposure is different. And certainly now, or or, la, or actually before Corona hit, the Premiership was getting ridiculous. You know, you looked at France over the last 10 years, all the big names were going there for cash. But in the last five maybe three to five years some of the money began thrown around the premiership you, you saw mm. a lot of foreigners flocking uh, to, to the premiership you know looking at charles peter for instance picking up a million quid yeah. at bristol um you know it has gone ridiculous but but the day to the week to week standard it isn't any different and it certainly didn't feel like that for me no definitely and mm. as two ulster fans we know um we've seen charles peter tear up for ulster and we see him turn up for bristol so yeah, yeah so, and then just sorry sorry Zach just quickly um, you said about kind of when you started knocking on the international door and they were saying what like you kind of work on and stuff that you needed to improve what was the main area of your game that you kind of had to work on to kind of not just um, be this guy that is really fast and scores tries yeah I think for me defence has always been my work on I am defensively miles weaker than attackingly um, which is probably how I ended up on the wing, to be fair. But, um, you know, the defence has always been tricky for me. But when you go to international rugby, it's detailed stuff, you know, high ball work, like boring bits of the game, like tracking back and making sure that your opposite number doesn't get a clean run of the fullback. Um, high ball work, you know, both attackingly and defensively, um, you know, just general backfield coverage, bits that you can get away with in in provincial rugby that if you do that in international rugby, you know, either Johnny Sexton or, or Dan Bigger puts on a, on a sixpence in the backfield and suddenly you're defending a line at five metres from your, from your, um, from your try area. So it was, it was very much that um, outside of, of, I guess my, my defensive work. Um, and I, you know, it, it's a tricky one because looking back on my career, I think I probably took that to heart too much at times you know okay. a lot of wingers get negative feedback about being bad defensively you know i know jacob stockdale has, has copped a lot of it uh, recently um but i don't think i don't think a lot of players would defend well on the wing because you are always defending the best attackers on the pitch now if you give me if you give me a one-on-one -on -one, or you not now but if you used to give me a one-on-one -on -one with you know, another winger or a fullback, nine, nine out of ten times, I'd make him look silly. And, you know, that would be vice versa. You know, you give Tommy Bowe a one-on-one -on -one with someone, he'll make you look silly. That, that's just the way it is. That's, that's because there's always more space out there, um, or there used to be more space out there. That's probably changed in recent years. But um, And you're also, you're always defending the, the best attackers. Um, and, and, you know, looking back on that, I probably took that too hard. I would sometimes get down about not being a great defender. But um, I think looking back, and this is something that Joe Shaw always used to talk about. He always used to about managing your weaknesses and focusing on your strengths. And looking back, you know, I made it as far as I made it because I was phenomenal in attack. I could score tries out of nowhere and I would score them literally every week. Um, and I think... Everyone's in a team for a reason, you know, props in a reason because, sorry, the prop is, is there for a reason, as in they can keep a scrum up. 
the second row is because he's good in, uh, in the lineout and wingers are, are there because they score tries. And of course, you need to try and get better at, at your weaknesses, but you know, be be mindful of why you are on a team. If I could, you know, say anything to, to any up and coming youngsters watching this. Mm. That's and in terms of that, so you're you're at Scotland, um, and you're tearing it up week in week out, Pro Twelve. In terms of the Lions Tour 2013. Did you feel hard done by not making that squad? Personally, uh, and, we're, and we're not just saying this because you're on the pod, we think you were hard done by by Warren Gatlin that year. Yeah, I mean, um, looking back, I think I probably was. Um, you know, at that point, I had literally done everything I could have done. You know, if, that, if, if at any point it was going to happen, it had to be that year. Yeah, uh, I was in the dream team every year. I was top try scorer every year. I'd just become player of the year, voted by all the other players in the league. There's literally not a more honourable accolade you can achieve in my mind. Um, and I was, you know, I was on fire for Scotland. Um, I think, I think if you look at the other wingers in that squad that went that year, you know, the comp- the competition was was pretty nuts. You know, Alex Cuthbert was really good for Wales. Mm. Tommy Bow was great. Yeah. Um, who were the other guys? George North started in the other wing. Uh, I mean, George North, he's just played 100 games for Wales. He's one of the best wingers around. Um, What did hurt me is that when we went to South Africa, I went to South Africa with Scotland instead, uh, there was a couple of injuries. And instead of flying me and he threw Christian Wade in, Christian Wade got picked up in the first game he played by, I think, Falau, thrown to the side of the pitch as if he was a ragdoll. And, uh, you know, obviously never played again. He was there to... To, to cover, I think it was Tommy Bowe's injury, maybe. Mm-hmm. But that kind of hurt, you know, I think. Yeah. Having done everything I did and to not then call me up. And, I, you know, I think, and he's done that again, not personally, but if you look at the last line of story, I was in Australia at the time. Um, they had a couple of injuries. They were obviously in New Zealand. And just because for, for ease, um, he had the Wales team, and I think they were in Samoa, and he called four players in, to that Lions tour who ended up playing a midweek test, some of which we either had never heard of before or we've now since never seen again. You know, it's it's stuff like that that in my mind devalues that jersey. And that was that was kind of more my gripe with that, not the fact that it was yeah. the whole Welsh team playing that tour. Um, because you know Wales were good at the time. Um, but Scotland have always been underrepresented. Um, and I think you know, he he probably looked at me and and just saw my defensive weaknesses and I go, well, I'm not taking it. That's it. It's easy as that because it can't have been anything. You, you hear quite a lot that Gatlin kind of speaks, comes into all the camps kind of during the Six Nations on the at the year of Alliance turns, maybe speaks to a few players. Does that actually happen or did, have yeah. you, did you ever yeah. have contact from him? I mean, with Scotland, he used to just stand next to the pitch on his phone and then, um, <laughs> and then have lunch with us and bugger off essentially. But... Yeah, no, he does. He does come in. Uh, I don't. There wasn't. There really wasn't many that year from Scotland. I think Richie Gray and Hogg, maybe. Uh, yeah. Sean Maitland. Richie Gray. Maitland went. Yeah, Maitland yeah, went. He might, yeah. Maitland went. Um, yeah, Maitland went, and uh, yeah, Richie Gray went. Who ended up on the bench for one of the tests? I think that was literally the only representation. Yeah. Test from a Scotland perspective. 
No, because stuff... look at that. If you look at this year and the way Scotland have been doing, I'm excited. I think, you know, obviously Hamish Watson is in my mind the first name on that on that team sheet. Um, Hoggy Hoggy will be there. He's been outstanding for years on end now. Um, God, who else will go? Xander Ferguson maybe. Um, Roser might go. I think Duan van der Meer we should go. Mm. I think he's been absolutely brilliant. Um, who else? Maybe Gray, the younger Gray brother. Uh, I don't know. There, there's, there's some real representation, I think, or should be this year. And I'll tell you what, if there isn't, then it kind of just shows where Gatlin's at with his head. No, we we, yeah. we kind of did our last podcast was previewing our Lions team and stuff, and we, we had a good few in there, and we were saying that yeah. we really just hope he picks players that are in form rather than players that have done it for him in the past. Yeah, especially this year when you consider how bad England have done. You know, there's questions over Mako and Billy Vanopola. Yes, fair enough. You know, they're they're in the past phenomenal players, but on form, they're not even going to, like, they're going to be playing, what, like, Bedford Blues or something on Friday night. Like, that's not enough to prepare you. So, ah, it's, but, it's brutal, man. Yeah, we hope we hope that Scotland will be more represented. They definitely you think so. You think so. Year. Yeah, let's, let's wait and see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, moving down into Harlequins, um, what, why the move? Um, so as you said, you were time, up, uh, I mean, I went through... Four coaches in six years at Edinburgh, I think. Um, and the last coach was a chap called Alan Solomons, who, you know, he was a fine enough guy. Um, one-on-one, I would get on with him. He was always fair, <laughs> extremely hard-nosed, like classic South African, but just did not want to play rugby the way I like to play rugby. You know, okay. playing rugby had gone, the try scoring had gone. Um, and... Uh, you know, we were literally kicking everything away up until 60 meters, probably. Um, so I got to the end of my career, you know, so much so that it was it was really hurting my Scotland chances. You know, I'd stopped scoring because I was basically never getting the ball. Um, and I had to work extremely hard to get into the World Cup 2015. Um, I broke my leg in 2013. Uh, that was I was out for, for nine months with that. And then came back and rugby had just changed. You know, we were not playing get the ball to Tim Visser anymore. We were, get, we were playing kick the leather off the ball and see what happens with rugby. Um, you know, which is not what I'm there for. You might as well put an academy player on, on, the, on the wing. Um, so my contract came to an end um, and I had kind of the non, non-unimportant feat of trying to get into that World Cup squad. So I had to fight really hard for that train, really, really hard. Um, and ended up playing really well in the warm-up games, which, you know, got me to that World Cup and ended up playing two games. So, you know, that's one of the biggest things that I've ever had to fight for, um, which luckily finished that. But before that time, my contract came to an end. You know, I was unhappy. Um, the club had changed. It wasn't it wasn't enjoyable anymore. Um, so I started looking around and Harlequins came in really, really early um, with an offer and I kind of just said, well, let's just see, you know, what else is around. I kind of fancied France a bit as well. Um, but um, then when all the offers were kind of on the table and I was speaking to a couple of clubs, I went to, to go and meet Conor O'Shea and I flew into Heathrow, met him at a Costa Coffee or something like that and essentially flew straight back afterwards. But the guy was just 
so incredible, like the way he talked about his team and how, how he protected his players and how he looked out for everyone and, and the philosophy of the club. You know, Quinns have always been known for attacking rugby, but he said a phrase at the time that I'll always remember this. He says, you know, we'd rather play rugby the way we believe it should be played than, than win a game. You know, we, we, we believe so much in the way we play. That's our identity that we're not going to change that um, uh, just because we think it'll win us one or two games. So um, that was awesome. Uh, you know, we, we managed to get the contract sorted uh, and I signed a three-year deal at that point, which in my mind was, you know, enough to see me out to the end of my career. I always said, you know, if I, if I get to play till I'm 31, I'll be really happy, especially the way, you know, rugby's going in terms of his character and whatever else. Um, so I signed a three-year deal and just absolutely loved it. The, that first year, you know, I went back to my score, score uh, try scoring um, records and, and really enjoyed my time. Uh, and then, yeah, after that first year, Connor went on to the Italy job. Mm-hmm. So we ended up with a with one of the other coaches called John Kingston, who um, I'd gone, you know, relatively well with. He was a forwards coach. I didn't have that much to do with him but he just kind of started playing games almost immediately when he took over. And I think he didn't play me for the first five games of the season and then, you know, made me play every other one after that. And then I think he did the same again in my third year or maybe my fourth year. I came back from tour with Scotland. Uh, We'd been to Singapore and Australia uh, and literally I came back from holiday and you're meant to have, you know, at least a five, six week preseason. That's all you get as an international nowadays. I think he made me play my first game after like two weeks or something like that. Um, and, you know, he could have put in, we played a game against Bristol, I think, who, who were in the championship that year. And instead of sticking academy player on the wing, he's like, no, I need you to play. And he made me play. And, and I therefore never got a preseason and kind of struggled physically throughout the whole season. Um, and he wasn't looking out for his players. You know, one of the first things he said, he, he was like, what do you, you guys think I'm, I'm doing at the moment? And I was like, I don't know, trying to get preseason sorted. And he's like, no, I'm looking at my recruitment. This is not my squad. I was like, well, you don't say that to you. Like, he, yeah, he does. Yeah. just inherited. Like, how are you trying to motivate your players? Um, and actually, um, you know, we did incredibly bad under him. And he, got, he ended up getting sacked. Uh, and in my last year, uh, so I signed a contract extension for two years after that. Um, and in my last year, we ended up with Paul Gustard, who I thought was phenomenal. Like, great guy. Um, just just like a, a good guy. And I think players recognize that and they want to play for someone who's genuinely a good yeah. guy. to muck you around. Only problem with Paul was that he didn't like me as a player. So he looked at me and he goes, mm, I'm going to play you a whole lot. So um, I ended up not playing a whole lot uh, in that last year. And then I sat down with him at the end of that season and I said, listen, I've got another year left on my contract, but you know, I'm not here to hold bags. You know, you get an academy boy to hold the bags and, and I'm off. And, you know, it was really amicable. He said, no, I can understand that. We'd love to have you here because, you know, your experience is invaluable around the squad, but, you know, I can see why you wouldn't want to, come and do that and I said you know I've always said I wanted to play till I was 31 uh, I'm now 32 so I'm, I'm ready to call it a day um, which was which was great you know and no hard feelings towards Paul who's sadly also been fired by Queens now um, but you know Queens are flying so uh, yeah, they are. Kind of work, it kind of works I think 
Oh, so, yeah. So you're coming, coming to the end of your Quinn's career is, is the time when Marcus Smith, correct me if I'm wrong, was coming through. Yeah. Um, he's, you know, he's already scored over a thousand points for Quinn's or something ridiculous That's... like that. It's, it's just insane. How good is Marcus Smith? Obviously, he's progressed a lot, but when you were when he was first coming through, did you did he really stand out to you as like this guy's a player? It's or... phenomenal. He came in in his last year at school. Nick Evans had just was had just retired. Right. Yeah. So we had a couple of players trying to fight for that 10, 10 jersey. Um, I can't remember. I think it was Timo Sweel, uh, Ben Buffer, and maybe maybe. Rui Jackson, or maybe he came the year after. But anyway, they do they weren't doing a hugely good job. So there was a lot of, a lot of rotation. And Marcus came in to do a training session with us when he was still at school. And they gave him a run in training in one of it's, it's always one team against the other, but it's always yeah. one slightly more loaded for the game than the other, without you know, you know how it works. Um, and he ended up in that team and he bossed those forwards around as if he'd been playing for Quinns for years. Like everything suddenly clicked and he made it work and he put us on the front foot. And I remember looking at him going, is that actually school? Like he was 17 years old at the time and he was bossing Joe Marler around and Adam Jones <laughs> as if they were, you know, as if they were kids. Jeez, what's going on here? Um, and I think, you know, we obviously all know how good he is now mm. and the, the weaknesses of his game. He's hugely determined, you know, he's, He's the, he's the perfect kid to coach because he takes on negative feedback or positive feedback. Um, but he's so incredibly hungry to get better. Uh, almost Johnny, Johnny Wilkinson-esque. Um, and, he, you know, he's a, he's a great little kid. Um, I got on really well with him when we were Quinns. Um, but if you look at some of the weaknesses of his game, you know, potentially his kicking for post and his defence, he's just turned those around in the last couple of seasons as well. Yeah, I think under Gustard, the game, Gustard was still bringing a lot of Sarri game with him. So a lot of kicking and a lot of focus, grunty okay. bits of the game. And that wasn't really working when you have the best attacking fly half in the league. But now that you see mm-hmm. the puffs are off, um, Quinn's are flying and he looks phenomenal. No, definitely. I guess kind of a common theme that I'm trying to get hearing from you is kind of you just enjoy playing rugby and if a team gives you that platform to play rugby and just express yourself, that that's kind of the club for you. So I guess perfectly kind of the perfect culture for that is obviously playing for the barbarians. Can you tell us a wee bit about maybe if you got any funny stories from the barbarians? Cause you hear a lot that on yeah. and off the pitch, it's quite a, it's quite a fun kind of few weeks. Yeah. Um, probably one of the best weeks in rugby for me. I think everyone says that, but um, I rocked up, you get a big bag of kit and some money in your hand and it's literally like, right, we're on the piss, you know, and, and, it, and it just doesn't stop. It just doesn't stop. I arrived on a Monday night, I think, <laughs> and we stopped drinking on Thursday night, or I did. I was, I was the young, I was the uncapped player in that squad. Okay. So I was just literally on tour with all my heroes, you know, Carl Heyman, Freddie Michelac, uh, Sergio Parise. The names in that team I played in were absolutely ridiculous. Bastero was in the centres. Um, and we just went out and out and out like during the day into the evenings it just never ended um, and so I think some players drank on a Friday night we beat England 
on the Saturday, I ended up scoring the winning try, which was brilliant. It's one of the best ratios I've ever got for the Barbarians because I only played one game and scored twice. Yeah. <laughs> that's why I never wanted to play for them again because they don't want to ruin that. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the funniest story from that time probably was um, the day of the game was my birthday. It was the 29th of May. And um, we were all in the team room and um, kind of ready to, to leave for the game. You know, we'd had lunch and whatever else. And um, Mickey Steele Bodger, he's, he's, he was the, the chairman or the president of the Barbarians. He's since sadly passed away, but he was an institution. He stood up and he said, right, guys, we've all had a great time. Um, you know, we're about to play England. I'm really looking forward to you guys play. But one person has kind of taken it too far and we've had to call the police. And, and everyone's like, what's he talking about? And then suddenly all the lights go off and these police sirens start going. And woo, woo, woo. <laughs> at that moment, I knew exactly what was going on. And they're like, Tim Visser, two, two massive Brazilian girls walked in, strippers in police gear. And they're like, Tim Visser, we're looking for Tim Visser. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> so they pull me to the front, handcuff me off the chair, ladle me in massage oil, and started like stripping all over me in front of like you know, Carl Heyman, Sergio Parisa. I was like, oh my God. One of them was literally smacking her boobs in my face. I was covered in, in massage oil. And literally, you can see in the game, one of the first passes I get goes straight through my hands because I couldn't get this massage oil off my hands. Um, anyway, that happened. Yeah, and then we go on, like, go on to beat England, which was, uh, which was something else. That's phenomenal. That is... Yeah. I've heard like it's crazy, but not. not we want to finish on. <laughs> yeah, what a way to what a way to wrap up the pod. I think. Um, yeah, barbarians are as crazy as they uh, the really stories is. go. Really is. Yeah, no, that's great. I guess just one quick final question, just just a quick answer for it. Do you need any stories or anything? Just a quick quick fire kind of thing. Um, what would you say is your proudest rugby memory or your your favorite rugby memory? You've got a few, you know, tries against New Zealand and stuff. Uh, yeah. I mean, without a doubt, I think, you know, I was so nervous for that game and then and then scoring twice against, like, literally a team that you've idolised ever since you were younger. Um, at Murrayfield, at my home debut, uh, in front of my parents was, um, yeah, it was up there. That's, that's a good story. Yeah, I remember watching it, actually. Um, yeah, I thought, I just thought, oof, this could be the day Scotland win, but... Yeah. We were really going for it, and then I yeah. think... 60 minutes we were in it and they pulled away yeah um but yeah you know being the team team they were at the time that was mm. in feed yeah no oh, well thanks thanks for coming on tim today some fascinating chats there and a great yeah, story thanks yeah. for having you guys and best yeah, luck with no, your, really with your golf with your golf later on the day i'm sure uh, yeah, the more i play the worse i get so i'm gonna give another go today <laughs> fair enough all right all right tim thank you so much right, cheers tim really appreciate thank it. you very much guys see you later yeah. Right. No, Zach, that was that was absolutely fascinating here and Visser there. That is fascinating. The stories, you know, just um incredible stories. It's 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 great to have insight into quite I suppose quite a different profile. We've we've potted with a few guys over the past couple of couple of weeks, but in terms of coming from the Netherlands, um and to to work the whole way to the top and um, it was it was fascinating. It was interesting just to hear his thoughts on Warren Gatlin as well. Tell if I don't know. I no, I I think this was very much one of those players that is extremely talented. It, he was, yeah, and kind of doesn't get the credit because he was saying about his defense and stuff. And 
sometimes coaches just can't look past that when they have that notion in their head and they just and he probably yeah if, i reckon if he was if he was five to ten years earlier um i think we would have i think we would have seen more than 33 caps for scotland well at that point it could have been 50 caps for england you know um because the game he just came to that moment where the game was transitioning into a more um, you have to be good at both defense and attack. If you're a prop, yes, fair enough, you scrum and you're up, but you also have to have good ball skills. Um, so in some ways, he was just unlucky about the generation he kind of grew up in. But, you know, the stats don't lie. You know, 33 appearances for Scotland, 70 points. That is insane. Like, that is, that is decent. Um, so, yeah, what a what a great... What a great guy to get on the pod. Um, yeah, you know, they've got a certain personality about them, try scores, goal scores, where you they do. just want to score. And I think he scored 14 in his first season for Edinburgh, 13 in the year after. So that's like 27 inside two years. And the numbers speak for himself. And they absolute do. cracking player and cracking story. And cheers for jumping on today, Zach. Pleasure, as and always. Just remember to like and subscribe, everyone. And we'll catch you next time. Cheers. Cheers.